A specialized machine tool will turn out one particular part, and it will produce the part cheaper than any other method can do. But if you try to change the product, the machine is useless. You get efficiency at the cost of flexibility. But this constructor is both efficient and flexible. I feed magnetronic plastics, the stuff they make houses and ships of nowadays, into this moving arm. It makes drawings in the air. Following drawings it scans from photocells. The plastic comes out of the end of the drawing arm and hardens as it comes. This thing will start at one end of a ship or a house and build it complete to the other end, following drawings only. This is Fractopia, forecasting the facts of tomorrow in the fiction of today. I'm your host, Todd Foley, and today's episode is about 3D printing. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last couple decades, you're probably familiar with the term 3D printing. In today's episode of Fractopia, we'll take a look at this method of fabrication, examining its history, the current state of the art, and the far-reaching implications of its future in the coming century. Part 1. Part 1. What it is. What it is. 3D printing is an automated process in which material is joined or solidified to create three-dimensional objects, with the material being built up layer by layer. It's an example of what is officially called additive manufacturing, and has become almost a slang term for all sorts of similar processes. Additive manufacturing itself is just one type of fabrication technology. There are three others, as explained by Dr. Tim Minchel of the Cambridge University Engineering Department. The first way we make stuff, we go from raw materials into a thing, is what's called through subtractive processes. So this is, you're probably getting a bit worried now, thinking, oh no, the engineer's going to give a really tedious talk. Well, it may be, but to try and bring it to life and link um, engineering with art, here is an example of a subtractively manufactured thing. Okay, there was a big old block of marble, and material was removed from that in apparently quite an artistic way to create that beautiful statue. In fact, the subtraction went on a bit too far there. There are a few bits missing. <laughs> The next type of manufacturing is called forming. We take your block of material, whatever it may be, and you apply force to it to change its shape. And many things in the world are made that way. My personal favorite is this one here. There is a nicely formed set of objects, Wallace and Gromit. The third type of technology for making things is casting, where you take your raw material in solid form, you make it liquid, and then you put it into some sort of shaping device, a mold, and you make uh, the object that you want. A nice example of that is the chocolate bunny. Now, it's used for many other things as well, and I could talk for hours about the way these are done, but there are three simple examples of subtractive, forming, and casting. But there is another type of manufacturing, and that's called additive, and that's where you have nothing to begin with, and you take your material, and you just put the material where you want it to be until you have the object that you want. Additive manufacturing is not exactly a new idea, although it's certainly the most recent of those four approaches. 
In addition to the basic concept of layered fabrication, what makes 3D printing special is the automation of the process. In a typical setup, the 3D printing device is guided by a CAD system. That's a CAD, or Computer Assisted Design. The CAD system uses what can best be understood as a virtual three-dimensional blueprint to guide the construction of these objects, and once the plan is loaded into RAM, the printer does its job without the need for human intervention. Part 2. Part Concept, two. And Concept and History The earliest known example of additive manufacturing was the 3D topographical map, the kind you may have seen in museums. The process of creating these geographical models was devised and patented in 1892 by a cartographer named Joseph E. Blanther. He even wrote a paper about it, entitled Manufacture of Contour Relief Maps. Blanther's method involved a painstaking and arduous process whereby he would impress contour lines on a series of wax plates, then cut each plate along those contour lines, finally stacking, pressing, and smoothing the wax sections into a completed model of some geographical terrain, including accurately scaled mountains, valleys, gorges, and rivers. Though no printer or mechanical system was used, the core concept was similar to what today's 3D printers do. Blanther was building a 3D object, one layer at a time. The concept of automating such a process wouldn't come about until 53 years later, and it was first envisioned, as such things often are, by a science fiction writer. In the summer of 1945, the pulp magazine Thrilling Wonder Stories published a short novel entitled Things Pass By, written by Murray Leinster. In the future world of Leinster's story, part of which you heard at the top of this episode, spaceships, houses, and other complex objects are 3D printed out of what he called magnetronic plastic. Leinster's concept was far-fetched for his time, but it wouldn't be for long. Fast forward to the 1980s, a time when most of us were just becoming familiar with standard 2D printers. At the Nagoya Municipal Industrial Research Institute in Japan, an inventor named Hideo Kodama had just devised three different techniques for fabricating 3D models out of thermosetting polymer. That's a material which becomes irreversibly hardened once cured by applying heat or chemical catalysts. Kodama's approach used ultraviolet light and laser beams to harden liquid photopolymers in a vat, and these experiments arguably represent the first known working approaches to rapid prototyping. Excited to share his invention with the world, Kodama published his findings in the Review of Scientific Instruments under the laborious title Automatic Method for Fabricating a Three-Dimensional Plastic Model with Photo-Hardening. It set off a wave of interest in the new technology, and the cat was out of the bag. Unfortunately, 
Kodama failed to complete the patent examination process for his invention, but his work inspired numerous other researchers around the world to explore similar techniques in what would come to be called stereolithography. Well, it was just one of those things sitting around, you know, an afternoon trying to figure out, you know, what, what to name the technology. That's inventor Charles, or Chuck Hull. In 1986, he perfected a stereolithography apparatus, or SLA, which used computer-guided lasers to selectively link chains of molecules in a liquid resin, a process that formed polymers one layer at a time. And, um, it, you know, I definitely wanted to tag lithography because that, that, that's you know, kind of synonymous with printing. And then stereo is, is, is kind of a, a, a Greek word that, that means, you know, three-dimensional or, you know, a, a volume. So I just put those two words together, so a, a volume printing or three-dimensional printing. A similar patent had been filed by the French engineer Alain Le Mehotet three weeks earlier, but his employers and financial consultants were unable to perceive the commercial potential of this new development. The French patent was abandoned for lack of business perspective, and Chuck Hull's design would be the one to go down in history. Hull would soon go on to found 3D Systems Corporation, which introduced the world's first commercial stereolithography system, the SLA-1, in 1987. Later that year, Carl Deckard of the University of Texas came up with a new method of 3D printing which used powders rather than liquids. A computer-controlled laser was used to bind these powders together into solids, and similar base materials are still being used today. In 1989, the process of fused deposition modeling, a type of plastic extrusion, was developed by inventor and entrepreneur S. Scott Crump in a classic example of necessity being the mother of invention. Crump had been attempting to build a toy frog for his daughter using a hot glue gun which he had loaded with polyethylene and candle wax. After multiple manual attempts failed to produce the desired result, he decided to automate the process, and the 3D printer as we know it today was born. Crump's design was later perfected and commercialized by Stratasys Limited, a company he co-founded with his wife, Lisa Crump. In 1992, the Stratasys 3D Modeler pioneered the same basic approach used by most 3D printers to this day, and by 2007, Stratasys was the clear market leader, supplying 44% of all additive fabrication systems in the world. Part three, Today, 3D printing techniques are commonly used in both rapid prototyping and additive manufacturing, enabling the production of complex objects from various materials that would be difficult or impossible to assemble via traditional means. The technology is advancing rapidly, 
and we're already seeing its application in more and more areas of life. Currently, the most common materials used in 3D printing are gelled and powdered grains of plastic, but that's already beginning to change. Manufacturers such as General Electric and Rolls-Royce are now using 3D printing techniques to fabricate single-piece metal parts for machines and vehicles. Many such designs already outperform their traditionally manufactured predecessors in terms of weight, durability, and material cost, and 3D printing has become an important part of industrial manufacturing in many fields. One of those fields is the rapid and cost-effective production of prosthetics. Once again, here's Dr. Tim Minchel. So, prosthetics. Prosthetics tend to be either expensive and very good, or cheap and not very good. And if you're a child who needs some sort of prosthetic device to um, help them live a full life, then it gets quite expensive and quite difficult. With 3D printing, you can do amazing things. So on the left there, you have little Liam, who was born with no fingers on one hand. And on the right, your right there, we have Emma, who has a condition which means that her joints are very stiff and her muscles are very weak. But thanks to 3D printing, you can produce very low cost uh, prosthetic devices that allow them to move and pick things up and do things. And as they grow, you just print a slightly larger one. It's fantastic for that. It's also fantastic for collapsing the distance between the places where things are produced and the people who need to actually use those things. This is especially important for people who are located in remote areas of the world. Here is a great picture. That is a camp for displaced people after the Nepal earthquake. And there are lots of little things that are needed that are actually very hard to get. For example, if a pipeline in, a, in a, a, a town has been broken, water's pouring out, you want to connect that pipe together again, but perhaps you need to collect, connect a big plastic pipe to a little plastic pipe, or a bigger metal pipe to a plastic pipe. To connect those two things, it's very difficult and to stop the leakage. So what these engineers from this great organization called Field Ready have done is to take 3D printers to places like this, and you print the object that you want right there. They may only need one, but the cost and complexity of trying to get that source from somewhere else and shipped all the way there would take far too long and just be, be no good at all. So there it is, 3D printer on a Land Rover bonnet being printed outside a, a camp in Nepal. When it comes to remote areas, there's nowhere more remote than outer space. And as you might expect, NASA was quick to realize the value of 3D printing for astronauts on board the International Space Station. Now, if you happen to live in a place like this, getting the things you want is quite tricky because you have to have one of these to get that thing you want all the way up there, okay? And that's fine, these rockets are getting cheaper and better and it's fine to, to have things delivered into space, but it's still a bit risky and still a bit expensive. So what they've done is to say, why don't we squish these two things of production and consumption together? And so, if you look now, there is an astronaut on the International Space Station who has 3D printed a particular component, a little wrench there, that he needs. That may not be very exciting, making a little bit of plastic like that, but it indicates a fundamental change in how we think about where we make things and where we use things and how they can be closer together. Recently, the U.S. Marines learned the same lesson, printing a single part to repair a multi-million dollar F-35 fighter jet, saving roughly $70,000 in taxpayer money. Throughout the world, 
From the U.S. to Dubai, 3D printing is making its way into the field of home construction. In March of 2018, a Texas startup company called Icon unveiled their own proof-of-concept model house at the annual South by Southwest Innovation Festival. As reported by News Direct, this approach is not only quicker than traditional building techniques, but can produce houses that are much more affordable. hundred houses will take roughly eight months to complete. But with an industrial-sized Vulcan 3D printer, Texas startup Icon claims it can construct a single-story home using cement in only 12 to 24 hours. Each 600 to 800 square foot home costs 10,000 U.S. dollars to build, but the company is working to drop it to just 4,000. A proof-of-concept model house unveiled in Austin features a living room, bedroom, and bathroom, along with a curved porch. Three D printing is even making headway into the world of fashion. Dr. Guy Bingham of Loughborough University in the UK explains the goal of his recent project, a joint venture called simply enough, Three D Fashion. But ultimately, you could actually see this technology ending up on a high street. So you can imagine a retail experience where you could go into a store, you could get three D body scanned. You could select the design that you wanted. That could be modified in a, in, a, in a 3D virtual environment and then could be printed out in front of you. 3D printing techniques are now applied in a number of different industries, including automobile and aeronautic design and manufacturing, medical supplies and prosthetics, industrial modeling and design, cutting-edge fashion, and even food. Soon we may adopt 3D printing techniques for everything from edible objects to human organs, from tools and electronics to drugs and medicines, and yes, even houses and space vehicles. Indeed, the flexibility of this growing technology is much greater than Murray Leinster ever imagined. As 3D printers become cheaper and more reliable, many people will own them and use them to produce everyday objects like toys, jewelry, artworks, dishes, cutlery, and other common household items. Still, it's not enough to simply own a printer. You will also need to buy the raw materials for it. And while 3D printers may become common household items, expensive materials and molecular assembly systems will not be. In order to 3D print something, you'll need raw materials, like metal ingots, plastic beads, etc. And just like old-school printer toner, you'll always need to buy more. While certain materials, such as raw metals and nano-assembled composites, will be priced beyond the range of the average home printer, the plans themselves will be easy to obtain. Open source plans for all sorts of things will remove the need to design these objects yourself, and plans of all sorts will be downloadable via the FOG, or for potentially illegal items such as weapons, 
from the dark net. Your intelligent assistant will be able to connect with online databases and search for applicable designs within seconds. Many objects, both custom and common, will be fabricated at home, or in small business spaces, or in communal maker spaces, such as we're already seeing in some metropolitan areas. Readily available open source plans will permit the fabrication of objects by people who are not designers. At the industrial level, larger companies will continue fine-tuning their additive manufacturing processes in step with increased automation across the board, and more and more factory floors will be populated by 3D printers, themselves driven by automated systems and robots. In these future factories, computers and AI assistants will do a lot of the designing. Even when they don't operate autonomously, AI co-designers will analyze human designs and suggest improvements, saving time and money, and further improving the quality of fabricated products. A new technology that will see further development is suspended gravity printing, also known as rapid liquid printing, where materials are printed within a large vat of gel. Trace Dominguez of Seeker Media explains. Since the popularization of the 3D printer in the last 15 years, we've seen at-home model making, specialized auto parts, and even shoes come out of these devices. But making 3D thingamabobs ain't easy. Creators have to build support structures to keep large creations from collapsing or add extra bits that need to be cut off after printing, not to mention all of the moving parts inside of the machinery itself. And this is where rapid liquid printing can help. It's faster, it eliminates the support structures, and instead of a flat surface, the gel provides 360 degrees of suspension and support for what is being printed. The printer is essentially drawing in 3D space, eliminating something else you might not have thought about when it comes to 3D printing, gravity. While suspended gravity printing will enable the creation of larger and more complex objects, the scale of 3D printing technologies will also extend downward. Nanoprinting, 3D printing at microscopic scales, will enable the creation of synthetically printed microchips, minerals, and compounds, as well as submicroscopic scaffolds for guiding the growth of highly specialized organic compounds, including drugs, skin, human organ replacements, and even tiny biointeractive machines. Like rapid liquid printing, this technology is already here in its nascent stages, though the concept has been around since the year 2000. In 2014, a company called Nanoscribe unveiled the first such printer to operate on this principle, using a process called two-photon polymerization, or two-photolithography. Just like regular stereolithography, the Nanoscribe device uses laser pulsers to cure polymers, but it does so at the nanoscopic level. Most printed parts and objects will continue to be composed of common or recycled materials, like plastics, clays, soft metals, and ceramics, which can be found cheaply in any highly populated area. But more specialized objects will require advanced metal alloys, chemicals, dyes, nanomachines, 
or molecularly engineered compounds. These composite materials will be prohibitively expensive, probably beyond the range of most people. But with nanoscopic printing technology, specialized companies will have the ability to produce them in quantity and on demand. Custom molecular engineering will allow for the creation of totally new materials with properties we've never seen before. New combinations of weight, color, smell, density, hardness, temperature, tensility, viscosity, hydrophobic resistance, stickiness, magnetism, conductivity, chemical sensitivity, photon responsiveness, and other physical properties, creating vast new ranges of design possibilities for future engineers. Of course, there will always be a subset of people who prefer things to be handcrafted by humans using time-honored techniques from previous centuries. In poorer regions and rural areas, some people will retain traditional crafting and fabrication skills, keeping these trades alive in a nominal sense. Even in big cities and Ubicomp zones, many people will still prefer to purchase unique, one-of-a-kind objects crafted by human experts using old-school technology. They may even take on a quality of luxury, bringing high prices for their rustic rarity. But for the most part, the common objects of tomorrow, from nanomachines and microchips to houses and vehicles, will be fabricated using recycled materials and additive processes, guided by precision computer control, and printed in three dimensions, one layer at a time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fractopia. I'm your host, Todd Foley, reminding you to comment, like, subscribe, and share, as feeding those important algorithms will help bring the show to a broader audience of futurists and fictioneers. If you're feeling especially warm and fuzzy, please feel free to show your support by dropping a one-time donation at thisisfractopia.com or joining my Patreon at patreon.com fractopia. Sources and links for further reading can be found in the show notes below.